0: Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3, we're continuing through this sermon series on seeing God's mission in the world, and also how the Bible's one big story that's connected and leads to Jesus, and we spent well the last five weeks seeing the goodness of creation, uh, the goodness of God's intent (laughs) for that creation, and We've seen God's delight in His creation. We've seen His generosity towards His creation, uh, His desire specifically towards uh, for fellowship and relationship with us as humans. It's so much goodness, and now we're you got to you really got to meditate on that to hear just how bad the fall is. And that's what we're going to look at as we read Genesis three. What is wrong with the world? And God tells us in chapter three. So. Let's read this and pray. It's Genesis chapter 3, the first 13 verses. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Uh, this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy. He has spoken to us today in love. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come today seeing ourselves in Adam and Eve because we are those who have thought ourselves wise in our own eyes, seen something attractive, taken it, and then also had to hide in shame because of what we've done. And so I pray that as we see Jesus today, you would help us hear your gracious word, hear the way you pursue sinners, uh, that you desire to cover our shame so that we may have you as our Father. So draw us out of hiding today into deeper relationships with you and with our neighbors. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So for centuries, this chapter in Genesis three has been called "The Fall." Uh, right? Creation. We got the fall, what went wrong with the world. And then from Genesis 3:15, well, chapter three on really is, what is God going to do to right and to redeem all that is wrong with the world, culminating with Jesus, and then new creation, which is eternity. And so you think about all those questions uh, I'm sure you've asked at some point, right? Have you ever woken up in the morning and saying, what's wrong with me? Why do I not feel okay? Or what have I done? I can't believe I did that. Or I can't believe I did that again. (laughs) Um, Why did I listen to that voice? They sounded so wise and authoritative and smart in the moment, and look where it led me. Turns out they didn't know what they were talking about. Or even the, the big question, why can't we all just get along? Why do we hide in shame from one another? And so as the scriptures tell us, uh, and experience will communicate and line up with what we read here in Genesis 3, this is a true story. And it's one of the most um, beautiful yet um, articulate ways of just getting to know yourself and the God who made you. Right? It's like the Bible gets out a scalpel. And goes right after the thoughts motivations and desires of your heart as we see ourselves in adam and eve and so as milton poetically put it and i put in our reflection creation with creation as witness paradise is lost creation weeps it groans the sky lowers frowns and drops tears of sadness because we're looking at the original sin and so just like we need a good doctor to accurately diagnose what's happening in our hearts, uh, in our bodies, what's wrong, to get real healing and change, it's the same thing. We need the diagnosis of Genesis 3 to better understand ourselves, to, for the gospel to be a power a good news in our life. And so let's jump in. We're gonna see uh, the lie we all believe, the temptation we've all failed, and then listen to the questions of our gracious God. Let's look at the lie we all believe. All right, chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. And right away we go, why in the world is there a snake that is talking? (laughs) Right? Um, And I, I know, we're modern people, but I know if you spend any amount of time trying to focus and zero in on the talking snake, you're gonna miss out on the whole point of the story. Right? It's showing what went wrong with creation aiming at human beings who are designed to be lords of the earth and instead of being lords of the earth they're being ruled by the word of a beast of the field. And so a couple of things that will help think about the snake uh, the word crafty to describe the uh, snake here is a a wisdom word it's used in both good and bad contexts Um, it means prudent right where you can see the way through to get done what you want to be done and it be used for good or bad, right? Scammers, you've gotten those phone calls, they're crafty. They go right after those places where they think you're most naive and gullible. <laughs> but good leaders are often crafty and shrewd. They know the human heart and they say, here's how we get people to avoid danger and do good things, right? But it says the serpent is more crafty than any other beast of the field. We don't know what that means yet. It's just an ominous beginning. Here comes the scammer, the serpent. And then the other piece of this, right, Adam and Eve are supposed to rule over the beasts of the field. That's chapter one. And along comes this snake. Uh, supposed to be the servant who's planting temptation, who's planting a lie. The, their subordinate is saying, yeah, did God really say? So what they're supposed to do is guard the garden from that nonsense. And instead, they choose to listen to the voice. So how do you get from the serpent to where we live in a world of shame? It starts with that question. When the serpent comes to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And here's how temptation works, right? The serpent comes along and comes right at you with this cynical, scoffing attitude. Say, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Right? Plants a negative seed in their thoughts, in their hearts. Because of that one brilliant question, a crafty question, uh, the serpent gets Eve to put God and his word in the defendant chair in that courtroom. And Eve is the, now the judge, and God's word is now in the dock, and she starts to question, is he good? But it starts with a scoff, Right? And that's it, really how we communicate these days, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, stop and think about it. How do you treat people who believe differently than we do? Or how do others treat us because we believe differently, because we believe the Bible, because we believe the Bible is true? They come at you first with a scoff. Right? You believe something like that? You believe Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead? Um, yeah. Scoffing is that attitude where it just, it's an attitude of saying, that sounds ridiculous, backwards, ignorant, it makes us on the defensive. And so that idea, did God really say, you can't eat of any tree? What is the serpent doing? He's saying, did God really say something like that? You, you think he's good and generous? It sounds like he's stingy. It sounds like he's unnecessarily strict. It sounds like he's not for you. It sounds like he's a Scrooge who doesn't care about your happiness. He's holding back. Right? And so as one pastor puts it, uh, the fall began not with a behavior, but with this internal attitude uh, coming from the serpent. It begins with a, a scoff. And that is the, that spirit, a scoffing spirit, that's what leads all of us to question or to reject a caricature of the real God. Right? So think about it. That's what Eve does. She starts to question and she, she adds to God's command. Right? It says, you know, don't touch the forbidden tree. Don't even touch it unless you die. God never said that. You're supposed to go back and compare what's written. In her mind, she starts magnifying God's strictness and then she rejects the strict God that she's imagined in her heart. And that's how scoffing works. I mean, do you see that in yourself? That what happens to Eve the, the really you believe that question um, that's what feeds our doubts that's what feeds our our skepticism that's what leads our some of our friends and family members to walk away from christianity it's that attitude of you really believe there's a right and wrong for all people in all times and all places and it was spoken and written down in a book really right. you believe god raised a man from the dead and that Every person in every nation, every tribe, tongue, and nation must believe in him and repent. You know, that's the voice of a scoffer (laughs) that makes us question our very beliefs. Psalm 1 says, actually, blessed is the human, the person, the man, who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers because there's something that tastes really good about sitting on a throne, looking at everyone else, and mocking and sneering rather than trying to learn or gain knowledge. Doesn't it feel good, right? So you, you believe that, you yeah. know? All the Philadelphia fans say, you root for the Cowboys, really? Why? <laughs> right, scoffing. And so with that question, Eve, Eve was tempted, and by her own choice, to rise up in pride and sit on the throne of, the, of arrogance to take God's chair So, scoffing is what leads us to believe this lie, and then this is what leads us to the lie that we all believe. Um, right, the text goes on, and the woman said to the serpent, "Right?" serpent says, did God really say? And she says, well, we may eat of the free, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of that fruit of that one tree that's in the middle. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then the serpent says, nah, that's not true. You'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. right? So Eva has responded to the scoff. She's already risen up in heart to this place of confident pride, if you will. And she's imagining God to be whatever she imagined him to be, to be more strict than he actually is, which is counterintuitive to everything we've learned in Genesis 1 and 2. She adds, don't touch it lest you die. He's even more uh, temperamental. And all of that sets her up to be deceived by what the serpent is doing, right? Because the attitude, the atmosphere, um, the whole atmosphere in the room, if you will, has changed. All the serpent does is tell her the truth in order to deceive her, (laughs) right? So think about this. He says, you won't surely die didn't die right away. They didn't, they didn't get the lightning bolt from heaven. They lived for hundreds of years in exile and death. But technically, he told the truth. Uh, their eyes were opened. Right? He said, if, if you eat, your eyes will be opened and, and you'll be like God. Turns out their eyes were open. It's just only they became aware of their nakedness and shame creeped in. Uh, they do come to know good and evil. Evil being both Bad, doing bad things, but morality, as well as harm or suffering. Uh, they're going to know the pain of bad decisions of their family and their own suffering. They're going to know su- the suffering of the death of their of a son. That's next chapter. Knowing is an intimate word. It's an intimate experience. He told the truth, but because the atmosphere changed with a scoff, they believed the lie. And what is that lie? That every human heart believes that that the God who made you is not good, that he can't be trusted, that you have to figure out good and evil on your own and rise up and be your own Lord and master and your own God to figure out good and evil in your own way, right? If you do that, you'll be like him. You'll be free. It's the best way to live, (laughs) We've all believed that lie, haven't we? Because right? the lie, it doesn't go after God's existence, right? He doesn't, say, he doesn't try and pull out a whole bunch of atheistic arguments. He just goes after God's character. It doesn't go after God's law. It goes after the nature of the lawgiver. Now the, the lie every human being wrestles with every single day, "God, do you love me? Are you for me?" Right? We believe it, that he's not for my happiness, he's not for my good, so I'm going to do this on my own. All right. Since you can't trust him to give us what we need, I've got to do this myself. I've got to figure out what's right and wrong and figure out what's going to harm me or be for my good. I've got to conceive of life without this God. And so the effect, as you follow the, the storyline of the fall, right, is rather than filling the earth with humble, loving, trusting humans bound together, Um, naked and unashamed, who, who just celebrate all of God's good gifts, the God who's given them everything. Rather now, the earth is filled with humans who are like Adam and Eve, who question God's goodness, who do whatever seems right in their own eyes. And this is the world we now live in. We wake up in the morning saying, what is wrong with me and how did I get here? What voice did I listen to? find ourselves alienated from God, alienated from ourselves. Right? That's what shame does. I hate myself. And alienated from one another. Even Adam and Eve, you read it, right? They, they hid from each other. See, everybody, like Adam and Eve, have scoffing hearts that believe this lie about God, that forget what he's actually like, and the, the moment that happens, it sets you up. You're just a sitting duck to fall when temptation arises, just like Adam and Eve. So you got the lie we all believe, the temptation we've all failed. It says that when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. (laughs) This is the big fail that broke the world. Every human being is in Adam or in Christ. (laughs) But this one event has world-shaking ramifications. And I know we go, okay, eating forbidden fruit from a tree, what's the big deal? You know, why is that the test? Because it doesn't seem like that big of a test to us, not being in the garden. But just imagine let's say there was more detail about why you should not eat this fruit of the tree, right? Just imagine, right? Have you ever tried to explain consequences to a 15 month old, right? Don't stick your finger in the light socket. You could just say it's hot, uh, or a three year old, right? I mean, Adam and Eve are in their innocence here. So just imagine if Adam and Eve, We're told by God, if you eat of this tree, not only will your your oldest son kill your youngest, Cain killing Abel, but then the entire world from here on out will be aflame with anger, vengeance, and death. Telling that to like a three-year-old. There's going to be a stream of the blood of the innocent from Abel, culminating with wars upon wars, families against families, nations against nations, earthquakes, famine, heartache, You're not going to like your wife the way you used to. She's not going to like you the way she used to. They would probably go something like this. I don't know what that means, but I probably shouldn't do that. (laughs) Right? But even that is like, okay, the consequence is bad. I should avoid the consequences. God gave them a test to say, will you love me for my sake? Will you obey me simply because I am your father who loves you, and you are my child whom I'm providing for? and so he gives them a test. The point of the fruit of the tree is that they would trust that their father is wise and good and know what is good for them. Right? To earn, to for them to demonstrate trust. And that's the test we've all failed. Right? We we've ignored the command. We've risen up and said, Father, I don't want you. I don't need you. I can run my own life. We've risen up in pride. And so that's what happens here is Eve, she's forgotten the Lord God. She doesn't use his name anymore. She sees that the tree is good. It's a delight to the eyes. It's going to make her wise. She can figure this out on her own. She takes and eats, and she gives it to her husband, who's just passively standing there instead of defending his wife and killing the snake. And he takes and eats. And so welcome to the anatomy of temptation and how it works. Where you see something, it's beautiful, it's attractive. It looks like this is going to be great for my life, make me wise. So I just take it and eat it. Life becomes uh, serpent-like, pure appetite. I'm hungry. I got to get it. Right? I'm, that's how that's how temptation works. I'm hungry, I eat. I'm thirsty, I drink. I lust, I desire, I take. And then the effect is I have to run and hide or cover myself with something that makes me feel okay. Construct fig leaves to cover our nakedness that our failure caused. And so Maybe the good question for you to meditate on is, where in your life do you see this pattern playing out? What things are attractive? (laughs) They catch your attention, right? They're shiny, they're beautiful, they're attractive. They keep calling you back. I love the insight of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It sounds, he sounds like a real sinner when he writes this. It's in your reflection where he says, with irresistible power this desire seizes control or mastery over your flesh. And it doesn't matter what that desire is. It could be sexual desire. It could be ambition. It could be just straight up pride and vanity. It could be desire for revenge or love for fame, just wanting to be in control and power. It could be greed for money. But in that moment, all joy and all the good gifts God has ever given to you, it's just completely extinguished. At that moment in the temptation, God becomes unreal to us. He loses all reality. We forget he's there. And the only thing that exists is that desire for something God made. See, Satan, he doesn't fill us with hatred of God. He causes us to forget him the way Eve forgot. And what happens is the lust just fills your mind and your will in deepest darkness to where you can't even think or see straight except for that thing you want, right? And then in that moment, you start going, did God really say that? Is that really bad? Can't I just cave in once? This will feel good, it tastes good. Why why does God not want me to have it? It seems right right now. And Bonhoeffer writes, it's here that everything within me rises up against God's word. (laughs) Sound familiar? It's the test we've all failed, the temptation we've all caved into somewhere. It's the source of our shame. See, desire is what gets us, to the affections of our heart. C.S. Lewis got it when he wrote the kid's story. He was trying to teach kids this. Remember the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, right, in this land where it's always winter and never Christmas, and there's the evil white witch and these... Two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve come as uh, the, the hopeful, promised kings and queens of creation. And how does she get Edmund, the son of Adam, to betray his family, uh, to betray the, his maker? Right. Here's Turkish delight. It's candy. <laughs> right? What do you want to eat most, my boy, the, the white witch asks. And it goes right after what, that's what this, the tempter does he goes right after what you want most and treats you like an animal with a desire that you feel like you cannot live without if you don't cave in and so then we take it rather than people who are open-handed and receive from god who who gives right we're called to rule over the beasts of the field now we act like them and if you watch any kind of nature documentary when do they ever say no to their desires (laughs) never right you could take a lion put him in the room put him next to like this delicious kale salad i know for some of you that's an oxymoron (laughs) or put a nice juicy steak what's this what's the lion going to do he's going to take exactly what he wants exactly what his nature is designed to chase so too this genesis 3 is saying look at the fall you will Human nature is now in Adam, and like Adam, we will always choose what we want most, and what we want most is something in creation, not our Creator. And it leads to nakedness and shame. And so then what happens? Well, God comes in the aftermath of the big fail, and He comes to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, right? Telling you this is what God intended. To walk with his creation in loving fellowship and friendship. And Adam and Eve hide. All right? If you want to know yourself, you're a, a runner and a hider. So am I. We run and hide from God. Right here, right? When Psalm, I think it's Psalm 14, no one seeks for God, no, one, not one. <laughs> it's because we're all running in shame because we fail the temptation right? We hide from ourselves, right? We say, I'm not that bad, and we try and package up the worst of us, put it in a corner, and never talk about it again. Or we have those questions, even in ourselves, where you go, I hate myself. Why do I do that, right? We hide. We hide from each other, right? If I told you right now to turn and look at your neighbor and tell them the worst thing you've ever done, right? Why will you not do that, <laughs> shame and we hide from God because if he knows exactly what I've done and he is good and I am not what happens when goodness gets next to not goodness well we feel like we don't belong because and we know he's a God of justice and that's even more terrifying and then he can add one more layer of insanity to, to the nature of unbelief. When we're all done giving in to our desires, we've listened to the wrong voice, we do this thing. It wasn't my fault to begin with. <laughs> right? God comes to Adam. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam do? It's not my fault. It's the woman that you gave to me. Right? He has the audacity to blame God for his passivity and failure. It's a bold move. Right? And then God comes to Eve. Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent deceived me. Not my fault. Right? Even though you can go back and you could show them, you saw, you were attracted, you took, you ate. There's no, the serpent didn't take, grab them by the hand shove it in their mouth. No, it was the desire. You caved into your desire, right? That's why Melville and Moby Dick, may heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, because we're all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and need mending. <laughs> now, the fall has every human being pinned down on the mat, saying, you believe the lie. You failed the temptation. You're alienated from God, from yourself, and from one another. Paradise lost. Which leads us to the hope of the passage, uh, God's pursuing questions. Since all humans are hiders, this is such good news, God has to and is by nature a pursuer of rebellious humans. That's gonna, you're going to see that from the rest of the story. If we're running away from God, the only way for any kind of reconciliation to happen is if the one who is offended pursues us, those who offended him. And it's right here in the text, because right after they hear God walking in the garden, the man and wife are hiding from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God calls out to them, where are you? Right? God seeks you with questions, where are you? And it's so gracious, (laughs) because they've just set the world on fire. I mean, how do you respond when somebody ruins what you love most when your precious is threatened? Um, You know, think this this is like adultery on the honeymoon. This is like treason in the kingdom. Cosmic treason is happening. This is like an artist discovering his masterpiece has just been vandalized. It's like parents coming home and finding their kids deliberately disobeying that last thing you told them not to do. And instead of coming in the room, stomping, weeping, anger, violent, saying, you're out of my life forever, how dare you? The Lord God, right now you have the Lord back in the story. The Lord God Yahweh, his personal presence and name, he comes and says, where are you? because he wants us to see, where are we? It's not like he doesn't know, <laughs> he's God. But this is the Lord God, the wonderful counselor who says, where are you, why are you hiding? Right? This is the character of the Lord right in the beginning as of a God who is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The God who has walks into the world on fire, who has the patience and mercy to ask, where are you? What are you hiding behind? What fig leaves have you contru- constructed for yourself? Right? Trying to cover your shame to be a good person. Maybe it's pouring all of yourself into your family. All right, if my family gets along, I'm a, I'm a decent person. Or maybe it's your career. If I get so high, you know, then, then I'm great, I'll be okay. Or, or maybe you just like being in charge. Right? But either way, it's a fig leaf. Trying to hide that feeling that we all have inside of us that we're not okay. And we need to hide it and we need to hide from God who's pursuing us right So where are you? why are you hiding? what if, what, if, what has caused you to run and hide from God in the last week in the last year in your whole lifetime? Do you see that pattern in your life? right Some of you say, ah I don't hide I'm a fighter right You draw swords, you're ready to fight That's hiding too you just pushing people away with anger. <laughs> All right. Next week, we're going to look in more depth at the first promise here, but look at the first thing God does in, in verse 15. As he curses the serpent. Right? I mean, we'll, we'll look more at the structure of the text next week. All right. Eve has been deceived. She's chosen the enemy. What is the first thing God does here? He says, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Listen to the words of sovereign grace. Right? Eve, the one who's deceived, uh, who's committed betrayal on the, on, the, on the honeymoon, so to speak, right? She's a rebel. She's committed cosmic treason. And God says, "You are mine. I'm putting hostility between you, the woman, and the and the serpent. Satan, you can't have her. She's mine. Right here, God claiming the sinner, the rebel, the moral failure, the spiritual adulterer, the covenant breaker, for His own. She's on my team. Team Grace." I mean, right here in Genesis 3.15, God is, this is the gospel promised beforehand to undo the curse through Eve, through the woman, through her son that she's, she's going to have. But just bask in that wonder that right away God says, I'm not going to let you get away. You're mine. He stops the running right there. Enmity, hostility is between you and my enemies. Right? Of course, Eve then, it becomes an instrument in God's plan to redeem the world. She's going to have a son, or a long-distance son, right, that we now know is Jesus. And this is our hope for our temptation, right? Jesus is going to have to face a similar temptation as Adam and Eve. Only this time it wasn't in a garden of abundance where everything is screaming, God is good, and he's for you. It's going to be in the desert in Luke chapter 4, In the wilderness while he's starving. Because after forty days of fasting, the devil comes and says, If you are the Son of God, right, if you got the scoff, command this stone to become bread. Right? What's the lie Satan's trying to get Jesus to believe? You know, if you're the Son of God, God would provide for you. You wouldn't be hungry. You wouldn't be suffering. You would have everything you need. Right? He tries deceit. Your Father in Heaven knows what you need. Just use your power that He's given you. Command the stone to become bread. You got this. It goes right after Jesus' is very real human. It's 40 days of hunger. His desires are, you know, scale 10. And Jesus responds, It is written, I'm going to submit myself to God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone. And He passes the test that we've all failed. He rules over his desires. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is being made perfect through the suffering of saying no to temptation. All right. uh, again, C.S. Lewis hopefully says no, man, no person knows how bad they are unless they've actually tried really hard to be good, <laughs> right? Because it's a silly idea that good people don't know what temptation means. Only those who resist temptation know how hard it is to change. After all, you find out, he writes, the strength of a German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a win by trying to walk into it, not just by laying down. The person who gives in to temptation after five minutes has no idea what it would be like an hour later, and that's why bad people, in a sense, have very little idea what it means to be bad, because they've lived a sheltered life, always giving in, never saying no. You never find out how strong evil is inside of us until you try and fight it in Christ because he was the only one who never gave in to any temptation. Is the only one who knows what temptation means. Jesus is the only complete realist <laughs> about good and evil. So this is what we mean when we say Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Ruling over his desires able to say no, and what he does is he sets up another test for us, right, because what we need to hear him say to us, take and eat, right, that's, that's what we're wrong in the garden, they took and eat instead of having being given to them, instead Jesus gives us his life and says, take and eat, this is undoing what happened in the garden, because at the Lord's Supper on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he, this is what he said, "Take, eat. This is my body broken for you." And then he took the cup, giving thanks, and says, "This is drink it of all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the, for many for the forgiveness of sins." See, here's the pattern that Jesus steps into for us. Eve saw the forbidden fruit, saw it was pleasing, attractive, good for wisdom. She takes and eats, and Adam just stands there, listens to the wrong voice and takes and eats. But Jesus, the better Adam, the one who actually listened to his father's voice, even to death on a cross, comes to us and says, take and eat the fruit of my perfection, my life for you. As I climb the cross, the tree of death, that you might have access to the tree of life. What are you eating? Well, his body, broken for you. His life, lived perfectly for you. His blood, you're drinking, the forgiveness of sins, covering every failed temptation, past, present, and future. Right. And we get it all because Jesus became unattractive in order to make us sinners pleasing in God's sight. Isaiah 53, what's it say about Jesus? He had no majesty or form that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. See, Jesus became guilty in our Father's sight in our place, bearing the curse, the judgment we deserved. And in his ugliness, we find that attractive because he's taking our place. Also, that we can take and eat the forgiveness of sins and now eat again with our God in fellowship. Right. See, the more you take and eat of what Jesus has done for you, that starts to heal the scoffing heart that says, Did God really say that He's good? <laughs> Did God really say that He loves me? You know? Now, what, what starts to change is you start to see God's goodness, his generosity, his word comes as a person to give you life through Jesus' death. Uh, you don't start to scoff at God's word anymore. You start to scoff at the idea that I could be a Christian, right? Because if you know yourself, you know the ways you fail temptation, you know, how, in, how in the world could someone like me be a Christian? <laughs> right? Start to laugh at the ridiculous idea that, that I represent, the maker of heaven and earth and i have blown it a lot and he has had mercy on me right and as well jesus taking eating of his life what he's done for us it starts to heal the lie because you can't accuse god of being stingy or being overly strict right because he's given us his only son and if he who gave up his only son for us how will he not also graciously give us all things paul writes And he also, through coming, taking, and eating, you have your desires rehabilitated, right? Because you're given God's spirit, the spirit of Christ to desire what Jesus desired, to do battle with the desires that would alienate us from God, ourselves, and other people, right? You start to pray crazy things like, God, your will be done, not my will be done. That's a Jesus-centered prayer. God, change what I want. And you'll find you'll actually want to do battle against those things you once thought were good to chase after. That's what the gospel does. Right? You no longer, like the bad man, just lie down and give up, tap out. You, you say, I want to do battle against this. This is not good for me, for God, or for my loved ones. And so rather than caving into our desires like beasts, Jesus is making us fully human again, teaching us by the power of faith to rule over them so just think about your life what are those places you live where you failed temptation right the gospel is calling you to doubt those desires right there may be desires for a good thing but to doubt your motivation to say i if i don't have this i can't fully live if you have christ and his affection it's going after those desires and rehabilitating them why this is conclusion here. Because grace and honor in Jesus Christ is so much better than the shame of having to run and hide. And when that becomes real to your heart, you'll come out from hiding. God will say, where are you? And you'll say, here I am, send me. Right. And you'll become a person. Say, not my will, Father, but yours be done. We're going to get it imperfectly, of course, in this lifetime. But what, what the gospel of Genesis is after is saying, look, do, you, do you see what's wrong with you? Do you see the scoffing heart you have? Do you see the lie you've believed? Do you see the temptation you failed? And then most importantly, do you see Jesus, the better Adam, the, the perfect Adam, who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, rose again from the dead and says, here is life in abundance. Come to me, take and eat. Go and learn what that means. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot happening here, but I pray that uh, you would start to undo the damage, uh, all those weak and weary by the fall that we sung about earlier today, that you would start to change our hearts uh, to, to be able to fight temptation. We thank you for Jesus, who, who loves us. We thank you, for the fa- you, Father, for loving us and sending Jesus to do this for us. And we thank you for the Spirit who comes along as our helper in the midst of temptation. And so may we be a people who are known for our desire to do your will, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.